0: Did you hear me then? Now now you can hear me. I thought my voice had completely disappeared there for a moment. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Church, I had my first encounter with COVID testing this week, and uh, earlier in the week I picked up a few flu-like symptoms, as they say, and so on Wednesday I went in to get my COVID test. It's not the most enjoyable experience that you can undergo. It's like having a bottle brush cleaner stuff up your nose and twirled around. So I picked up a few of these symptoms during the week. One of those was increased volume in snoring. <laughs> I didn't see that on the COVID web, website. Um, but if it was one of the symptoms, then I was in big trouble. I'm in big trouble anyway. You can talk to Mary about that. But the good news was that I was clear on Friday from any symptoms of COVID. So that is good news. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't be here, let's be honest. (laughs) (coughs) Excuse me. Last week, we encountered Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which means literally the oil press. And we spoke of the prayer that he prayed. And I said that this is the most important prayer of all of Scripture. The prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, the most important prayer in all of Scripture. And I made the comment, and I stand by the comment, it is the most important prayer that you and I have to learn in our walk with Christ. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. And so we heard how Jesus was taken into custody last week, and now in the reading that Jonah has just brought, the accusations begin to fly. Four distinct meetings take place in this one morning. A meeting with a council of elders, a meeting with Pilate, the Roman governor, a meeting with Herod, and then another meeting back with Pilate. Jesus is on trial, and a death sentence is hanging over his head. At the end of Luke 22, Luke informs us that Jesus is beaten, he is mocked, and he is insulted by those who are guarding him. And then verse 66 Dawns the last day, the last day of Jesus on earth. And so we read in chapter 22, verse 66 of Luke's Gospel At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. The Jewish leaders, including the two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, are desperate to be rid of Jesus. He's threatening all that they hold true. According to Matthew twenty six fifty nine, they were looking for false evidence to put him to death. They didn't find any, but they proceeded with the sham of a trial. The trial, according to Hebrew rules, was unlawful on at least five accounts. It was not being held in the temple grounds, as it should have been by Jewish law. Jesus is allowed no defense, as he should have been, by Jewish law. The verdict comes on the same day when it should have had a two-day time frame, according to Jewish law. It happens on a feast day. This is taking place on Passover, and this should never happen, according to Jewish law. The high priest should never pronounce judgment, and that's exactly as we've heard what happens. To find Jesus guilty of blasphemy They first ask him, is he the Messiah, and then is he the Son of God? So that's the charge that the Jewish leaders are looking for, to accuse him of blasphemy. Some of you will have heard me speak about a blasphemy trial that took place in Pakistan a number of years ago, about 10 years ago, to be precise. A young woman called Asia Bibi, when I say young woman, she's 51, she's two years younger than me, so that makes her very young. She was held up on blasphemy charges and she was subsequently released 10 years after those first charges uh, were held and she now lives in Canada. Her actual crime 10 years ago was to drink a cup that a Muslim had used out in the fields as they were working in the fields. An argument ensued and she was instructed to convert to Islam. And that's when things began to escalate. Her response was stunning. She said the following to her accuser, I believe in my religion and in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the sins of mankind. What did your prophet Muhammad ever do to save mankind? And why should it be me that converts instead of you? You can understand why things began to escalate at that point. So Asia Bibi was thrown into jail and she was found guilty of two courts of law of blasphemy. Her punishment was to be hung. She was to be hung until she would be dead. A number of supporters, a number of prayer uh, warriors went into action around the globe. Uh, someone who supported Asia during her early uh, years of incarceration was a man called Shabazz Bhatti. Now, Shabazz, at the time, was the only Christian minister in Pakistan's cabinet at that time. And he spoke up very courageously, and he spoke up for Asia. He knew the danger of standing and supporting truth and justice, and he said the following, "'When I'm leading this campaign against Sharia law and for the abolishment of the blasphemy law,' And speaking for the oppressed and the marginalized, persecuted Christians and other minorities, these Taliban threaten me. And he went on to say, I want to share that I believe in Jesus Christ, who has given his own life for us. I know what it is the meaning of the cross, and I am following the cross. Three days after he said these words, he was executed and murdered in a shower, of bullets outside his mother's home by the Pakistani Taliban. He gave his life, standing up for truth, standing up for his sister in Christ, Asia Bibi. In verse 66, the high priest asked Jesus this question. Are you the Messiah? They said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty gods. Jesus answers obliquely, neither really confirming nor denying their questions, but guilt is presumed. And so verse 70 goes on. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. And so then he is led off to Pilate, the governor. Now, under first century Roman occupation... Roman authority was required to execute any prisoner. And so desperate are the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus, they begin to accuse him of other charges, charges that the Roman authorities would be more concerned about. And so if you look at verse 2 in chapter 23, we learn the following, and they began to accuse him, saying, We've found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So three charges that they think the Romans might be interested in. Subverting a nation, opposing the payment of taxes, and claiming to be a messiah, a king. In other words, an alternate to Caesar. Now the first of these is hard to prove. The second is an outright lie. And only the third charge, that he is a king, has some basis of truth. In the character of these half-truths, we see who is behind the accusations. We see the source of the accusations. Satan is called by Jesus the father of lies, and his name means the accuser. The demonic hiss permeates these accusations. And so Pilate begins the interrogation. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Pilate quickly comes to the conclusion that Jesus is innocent. He quickly comes to that conclusion. But the Jewish leaders are not at all satisfied with an acquittal. So they speak of Jesus stirring up the people all over Judea, beginning in Galilee they see. And Pilate, ears prick up. And he thinks, ah, here's a way out for me. He had some involvement in Galilee. I'm going to bring in Herod, who is the governor of Galilee, and that's exactly what happens. Now, Herod is even less helpful than Pilate in seeking the truth about Jesus' innocence or guilt. The text states that Herod is delighted to see Jesus, but basically Luke records the reason for his delight as that he might catch a glimpse of some kind of miracle. Look at verse 9 and 10. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in elegant robes. They sent him back to Pilate. Jesus is silent in the face of this onslaught, fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The Jewish leaders continue to accuse. Vehemently, aggressively, Luke says. Herod and his soldiers mock Jesus. This king seemingly has no power. And they mock him. They put a robe on him and say, here's the king. He seems incapable of defending himself. What kind of a king are you? They mock. Jesus has returned to Pilate for a second time. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence. I found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And you see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. At this point, the pressure of the crowd begins to tell on Pilate. At this point, the noise of the crowd begins to influence the outcome of this trial. The pressure of the crowd is now, I would say, one of the single biggest weaknesses of Western culture. With no reference to truth, justice is meted out by the baying crowd who shout the loudest on Twitter and Facebook. Just ask Gina Carano of Mandalorian fame, who last year dared to express a conservative view on her Twitter feed. She now no longer has a job with Disney. I've since concluded my Disney Plus subscription. John's Gospel records this encounter between Pilate, Jesus, and the crowds, and the baying of the crowds. And John emphasizes the battle for truth that's going on in this three-way encounter, Jesus, the crowd, and Pilate. In Matthew, we read, Jesus said, My kingdom is from another place. You are a king, then Pilate said. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Who are you listening to today? On what side of truth do you stand today? Last Sunday, I went home. After our evening service, it'd been a full weekend of the kingdom of God. We'd had weddings and worship and special general meetings, all glorifying God. I was tired. I turned on the TV program called Sunday, and in three short stories, I heard Western culture's narrative very clearly to me. The first story was a story about two children who were being cheered on for changing their gender. One was seven years old. The other was about 13 and 14, taking hormones to block puberty, and the journalists were effusive in their praise of these young children who were changing their gender because they were being true to themselves. The second story was less provocative about a disabled boy launching a punk band. No problems with that. The third was the easiest target at all. It was an attack piece on Donald Trump from a previous lawyer who has setting out to see Trump in jail like he is in jail. So there was the narrative. Transgender children, disability, and attacking Donald Trump. If you put these on your screen, on your social media feed, the world and the crowd will cheer you on. But there's very little truth on display, just obeying crowds. Release Barabbas. Release Barabbas. That's who we want to see go free. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I find in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will give him, therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder and the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. A terrible exchange takes place. Barabbas the murderer The rioter is allowed to go free and the sinless son of God, full of grace and truth, was led away to suffer the darkest form of execution that man had devised. Jesus would be nailed to a cross and allowed to die a torturous death. The guilty is exchanged for the innocent. One of Jesus' own close apostles, Judas Iscariot, had enabled this whole sordid injustice to unfold. Another exchange had taken place. 30 pieces of silver he had received for giving up information about his beloved master. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Matthew twenty-seven, twenty-three, and 4. The chief priests were unconcerned. Judas was bereft in his guilt. Judas' guilt consumes him and he takes his own life by hanging lost forever. And that's what sin does to you. It will destroy you. It will destroy you. It will eat away at you. But this tragic, sordid account of Jesus' death sentence is not without hope. Indeed, it is the basis of our hope because this was God's plan all along. The sordid, shameful exchange of Barabbas for Jesus is the basis for what I call the great exchange where you and I can go free. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, Romans 3. Guilt and sin must be paid for. And God pays the price in the blood of his son. Through grace, we are declared not guilty. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. This is the great exchange. The great exchange. Foreshadowed hundreds of years by Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, we read the following. Who has believed our message? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of dry ground, he has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, Jesus takes our pain, Jesus takes our transgressions, our sins. He takes them all on his person at the cross of Christ. He received God's punishment. He was pierced. He was crushed. And by his wounds, we know peace and we are healed. This is the great exchange. This is the great exchange that took place 2,000 years ago. Who was guilty of causing the death of Jesus? Was it Judas? Was it the chief priests, Anna and Caiaphas? Was it the elders and the scribes? Was it the crowd? Was it Herod? Was it Pilate? All had a hand in his death. But maybe, just maybe, the answer to the question, who is guilty for Jesus' death, lies a little bit closer to home. There are many things that God will exchange in your life where you might take off the old life and put on the new life. There are many things that God would invite you to lay it down Lay it down at the cross so that you can take up something far, far more special. In Colossians, Paul speaks of ridding yourself of anger, of rage, of malice, of slander, of filthy language. And he goes on to say, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, the great exchange all expressions of an exchange that can take place in your life. But the fundamental great exchange that must take place is when you move from unbelief to faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's where your fallen, sinful self is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Today, this morning, you can know that great exchange in your life. I'm gonna invite the musicians to come forward. In a moment, I'm gonna give you space to allow a transaction to take place between you and a holy God who we sang about earlier to allow this great exchange to take place. Now, I don't know what it is that God wants to take away from you, but I do know what he wants to give to you this morning. For some of you, it may be today is the day of salvation where God is calling you to move from unbelief to belief, to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In a moment, you can do that. In an instant, you can do that as God calls you into his kingdom. For some of you, the transaction is about letting go of some of the baggage that you've gathered up over the years. Maybe it's the pride that makes you stand so tall that you're struggling to see God in your life. Maybe it's the reverse. Maybe it's a sense that you're not worthy. You've never felt you lived up, and God would ask you to lay it down. Maybe it's sickness. I don't know what it is that God is wanting to take away from you, but I do know what he wants to give to you this morning. He wants to give you the righteousness of Christ. He wants you to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So bow your heads with me and allow this transaction to take place. Allow God to take the truth of his words and the obedience of his son, the Lord Jesus, and to do that transaction that he's wanting to do now. Come, Holy Spirit, apply the truth of your word. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that today is the day of salvation. I thank you for the gift of belief that you are holding out this morning to my brothers and sisters. And for that man, woman, boy, or child who has not yet said yes to you, grant them that gift, and will you grant them the faith to say thanks. Thanks, Jesus, for being obedient. When I was not obedient, you were obedient. Thanks. I receive it by faith. Holy Spirit, would you come and do that deep work that only you can do, applying the truth of your word to your children here, Hope Church. Lord, we thank you that there is an exchange taking place right now. You're stripping away the anger, you're stripping away the guilt, you're stripping away the shame, you're stripping stripping away the sickness and all of that can be done because of your faithfulness, Jesus. We say thank you, thank you, Lord. Minister your grace, minister your truth. Come Holy Spirit and apply your truth to your children now. May we know this gift of the great exchange. May we be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. May we walk out of this place in a new place, in a new way of seeing, in a new way of walking. May we walk in the light of Christ. May we shine brightly because we've been clothed with the Son of God. Come, Holy Spirit, and minister your grace. Come and minister your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. mean.